Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And uh, before we begin today, I want to remind you of this uh, website called wealthformula.com. Lots of uh, interesting resources over there. It is the home of Wealth Formula Podcast. And it's also where you go if you want to sign up for some of the various lists that we offer, including the Accredited Investor Club, which you may uh, may wish to consider if you are looking to take advantage of, I think, what's going to come down the pipe in 2024, which is uh, some uh, really interesting deal flow. So if you are an accredited investor, uh, and what is an accredited investor? As a reminder, it is somebody who just has a certain amount of money, $200,000 per year or, or $300,000 per year if you're filing jointly, or you have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence, then you are an accredited investor. And you should sign up for Investor Club at WealthFormula.com. Now, let's talk a little bit about a topic we talk about quite a bit on this show, uh, which is really important, and that is taxes. And I'll say this about taxes is that a lot of people, a lot of politicians and stuff have opinions on who's paying enough and who's not, and I'm not sure I agree with them. Is You know what drives me crazy is politicians talking about how rich Americans need to start paying their fair share. That fair share is what drives me crazy. Well, first of all, Let's talk about that rich American part too, because the reality is they're not talking about rich Americans. They're not talking about Jeff Bezos. You can do whatever you want. They're not going to get Jeff Bezos to pay you a whole lot more. It's just not going to happen. Right. But you, that's what, who they're talking about is you. You're the easy one to target because you probably are a high wage earner, a W-2 wage earner. Somebody who's making three dollars $400,000, $800,000 per year. You know, maybe you're a doctor. Maybe you are a lawyer. Maybe you are just too highly educated for your own good and happen to go into a profession that pays you a lot. If you are making that kind of money, by the way, congratulations. You are doing well. You are doing very well, right? But you aren't rich. You are not rich. Believe me, you're not rich. There's a lot of people making a lot more money than you. Yet, you are the one who gets vilified. The darts come your way. And you are the one that gets destroyed by the tax code the most because you are the easiest, easiest target of them all. Right? You rich doctor, you. And let me ask you a question. 
Do you think you are paying your quote-unquote fair share of taxes? Well, in, if you're in California and you're making that, you know, high six-figure salary I just mentioned, you'd be paying a tax rate of over 50% when you got the state combined in there as well and you got all the other little, you know, extras. And I bet you don't think that's fair either. At least you can agree with those politicians on one thing, right? No, it's not fair. We're not paying our fair share. We're paying too much. That's what you're thinking. And then there's the estate taxes, right? Estate taxes are another one. For those of us uh, who have done or will have done well in our lives and paid taxes along the way, there's an extra kick in the ass on the way out. It's downright punitive, right? It is punitive. Again, taxing over 50% on money that has already been taxed. Do you think the government deserves that money or your family? I mean, if you want them to have it. I mean, I don't know what your relationship is with your family, but I'd rather have my children get any of the money that I'm leaving behind than somebody just blow it off on... uh, Uh, overpaying for bureaucracy. Um, But you, what do you think? Your family or government? I think I know the answer. And if you think that you aren't rich enough for the estate tax and that you don't need to bother to think about that, you're wrong. Those numbers are coming down next year. And there are many who would like to see it start as low as $1 million. $1 million estates. This will almost certainly affect you if you don't plan for it. Because I know the demographic of this show. This is a very high demographic show. And most people are, you know, at least in the six-figure space in terms of salaries. And getting to net worths like that over time, even a million bucks, even five million bucks, chances are quite good that you're going to end up there. And if you don't plan for it ahead of time, like you can, you are going to pay the stupid tax. By the way, that's what it's called. People call it the stupid tax because there's too many ways to avoid it. And it all starts with various trusts. Go back to my back to school series. uh, I think back in September, uh, back to school series on estate planning. Listen to that one. All right. That one will tell you what you need to know. Anyway, you got to you got to be very mindful of this stuff because these darts are coming from everywhere. And luckily, there are groups like the National Taxpayers Union Union. they're a foundation uh, that really is uh, out there looking out for, you know, the, the, the taxpayer, you know, and, and that's what they do. In fact, there's a case about to go in front of the Supreme Court shortly that could have profound effects on your investment. So you probably don't know about this. It's called Moore versus the United States, and it has something that you should absolutely know about. And to help you understand what the stakes are, I invited an NTU member, Joe Bishop Henchman, to explain it all to us here on this episode of Wealth Formula Podcast. And that's what you're going to get right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? 
to learn more, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Joe Bishop Henchman. He's the Executive Vice President at the National Taxpayer Union Foundation, uh, leading work to protect taxpayer rights through research, litigation, and outreach. Joe, uh, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Great to be with you, Buck. So uh, maybe you could start out just telling us a little bit about what the National Taxpayer Union Foundation is, just so we have some reference. Sure. We're a team taxpayer here on Capitol Hill in Washington. We try to make sure the voice of the taxpayer is represented at all levels of government when they're making policy decisions. So, uh, you know, the the special interests and the short-term interests, they've got all of their representation in Washington. We try to make sure that the general taxpayer interest and the long-term is represented too. So we put out a lot of research. We show up to... Um, provide education and information about things at uh, the legislative branches, the regulatory agencies, and in the legal world. And, uh, I think that's what we're talking about today, but we're uh, we're all over the place. Yeah. By the way, if anybody's interested, it, it looks like the website there is www.ntu.org backslash foundation. Yeah. So let's, let's jump right into this, uh, Joe. You know, the, one of the reasons, uh, uh, the, but that I wanted to have you on the show is I, I kept hearing about this case that uh, sounds like it's a, of of significant consequence, um, although, you know, it, it may not seem so on first blush. It's a case called Moore versus the United States. Would you, can you describe the case for us and, and, and talk about what the issues are? Sure. The facts are a bit unusual, but uh, Supreme Court has agreed to hear it, and it could have very wide implications for anybody that is an investor. So um, we are trying to spread the word about it. Uh, they're going to hear it on on December 5th, the arguments in it. Um, the case involves uh, a couple from the United States, Mr. and Mrs. Moore, that invested in an Indian company in India. The way, the way their complaint describes it uh, is uh, a friend approached them and said, I'd love to help get better farm equipment to people in India. And would you like to put in a, a little bit of money um, almost as a, a charitable endeavor, uh, but set up as a, as a profit-making enterprise? And they agreed and, and put in some money. And uh, the company, uh, again, according to the filings, has uh, reinvested the profits that it's made. So it's gotten bigger, helped out more people, gotten more uh, uh, farm equipment out to, and to more successful entrepreneurs. And uh, by all accounts, is a big success. The Moors, uh, you know, I guess they get a statement every year about how successful it is, but uh, According to them, they've never taken any distributions. They've never taken any money back out of the business. Almost viewed it as a, uh, a, a you know, a do-good uh, investment that they did. Sure. So they were surprised in 2018 when they got a tax bill from the United States government. And the tax bill is associated with the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was passed the year before, which moved us from a worldwide system of taxation to a territorial system of taxation for corporate tax and as part of that, imposed a one-time tax on accumulated, deferred overseas profits by American-owned companies. So that covered a lot of ground in that last sentence there. But yeah, um, yeah. that's why uh, and their, their lawsuit is alleging that tax is unconstitutional. So so just to be clear, is it, um, is it the 
reinvestments that the you know that thing theoretically could have been paid out as dividends but they were reinvested or is there are they being taxed on any sort of perceived value of the company and you know unrealized capital appreciation of 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 that investment that's actually the core of the dispute so i think the uh, Supreme Court is going to be, I imagine the justices will ask a question very similar to the one you just asked there, because either side characterizes it differently. So according to the Moors, um, they never earn any income. So whatever this tax is, it's not a tax on income. It's a tax on their the wealth they have in the company, their ownership stake, something like that, which they allege is beyond the power of the federal government. Because the federal government, to the extent they can impose a direct tax on individuals, they, they can only tax income. So if something is not income, they can't tax it. According to the government, um, they say this is a, a tax on business earnings, that the business did earn profits, and the tax code at that time could reach it. And the Moors chose, um, as you could under tax, the tax code at the time, to defer repatriating those profits and paying tax on them um, until until this happened. So, uh, you know, was this realized or not? Was this income or not? Uh, the, those really are, are, the, are the core of, of the case and will determine whether this is a constitutional tax or not. So um, talk a little bit about how this particular Supreme Court decision could potentially have broader broader impact um yeah yeah no i mean it i imagine not a lot of us have invested in an indian corporation and not taken out profits and uh, we're only subject to the mandatory repatriation tax of 2017 i imagine that's a very small group of people in fact yeah the, the moors may be the only people in the world with this set of facts but uh what they're arguing is that unless there is a realization event the tax is unconstitutional. And uh, you don't have to be a sophisticated investor to have uh, investment vehicles that either defer realization or don't have a realization event. And I'm talking about mark-to-market. I'm talking about uh, 401ks, which obviously defer the tax, uh, depending on how they're structured. Uh, A lot of different investment vehicles do. And um, uh, another nonprofit, the Tax Foundation, has calculated the potential revenue impact of all of those provisions being declared unconstitutional as about $3 trillion over the next 10 years, which is, you know, I think about half the size of the federal budget right now. I used to be, uh, I, I used to be able to say that is the, the federal budget, yeah. but now it's about half of it. Um, so it's a lot of money. And, um, you know, any, if, if, if the Supreme Court goes broad here, and they can go broad two different ways, they can go broad in favor of the Moors and say, unless there's a realization event, it's not income and it can't be taxed. And that could imperil pretty pretty much every provision of the tax code that relies on defer, deferring tax or mark to market. They could go the other way. They could go broad in favor of the government and say, um, you know, this isn't an income tax. This is within the government's taxing power. And that could mean a federal wealth tax of the kind proposed by Senator Elizabeth Warren would be constitutional. Or they could, you know, do a craft a narrow ruling in the middle, which is what we outline in our brief to the court. But, uh, you know, ultimately they're going to do whatever they're going to do. Uh, but it, it could have very wide implications. You talked about it, what you guys outlined. So you're not um, you're not in favor of the position of of either the Moors or the government here. I take it. 
And it was a tough call for us. I mean, we, you know, we fight for taxpayers. So it's, we're generally, when we're filing court briefs, it's on behalf of the taxpayer. It's against the IRS, against the government, against the state tax authority. Uh, and in this case, there were 43 outside briefs filed, 22 in favor of the Moors, 18 in support of the government. And ours was one of three in support of neither party. It's a rarely used procedural thing. It's not, a, you know, completely unusual, but um, it, there's not a lot of briefs that are filed in support of neither party. But, um, you know, we think both sides kind of get it wrong in their framing of the case. We think that this particular tax is constitutional. It's a tax on business income, not individual income, really. Um, but uh, we also don't. We also think the lower court here got it wrong in saying that any federal tax is constitutional. We think that's certainly wrong. Right. Um, okay. So just you know, I know people are probably doing a second take uh, when when they heard the, about the deferments on IRAs and 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. So let, let's let's step back and just the positions here um, th- that could happen. Let's say if one side or the other wins, if somebody has you know, has an IRA or defined benefit plan, whatever, some kind of tax deferment vehicle. Mm-hmm. If, if the Moore's position is, uh, uh, comes out, uh, you know, the victorious, uh, would nothing would change there, right? Because those are just deferring. And that's what they're saying that, you know, that's what they're saying is that every, anybody, if it's not realized, it shouldn't be taxed. So those, those would remain, that would remain, uh, you know, in a solid position. Is that right? I would hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one way you can look at this is that um, the Moore's investments, that their business, because it was essentially a pastor entity, realized income the business did, even if the individual, uh, even if the Moore's as individuals did not. And uh, they chose to defer tax on that. And now if the Supreme Court says, comes in and says, well, if if the taxpayer chooses to defer, the government can't later, cannot later tax it. Um, if the Moors win, that, you know, that's one way of framing kind of how this turns comes out. So if uh, allowing taxpayers to defer tax means the government can never tax it, it's not hard to see uh, big changes coming to the 401k system. Um, as a, you know, a, a, a potential congressional response to that. Yeah. Which, um, which effectively, I think what you're getting at just for, uh, you know, just to sim- simplify for myself, what you're saying is, well, listen, you, you can't, uh, I think the government in having these types of deferred programs, what they're doing is they're, they're saying, okay, you don't get taxed now, but eventually we're going to get taxed and yeah. we're, we're going to get our money. And, and what, what the issue is that if, those money, if those money don't ever have to get realized, they'll never see any sort of tax benefit to that. It could just sort of be passed down. Is that right? And then just continue. Yeah, to- and then you know the IRS doesn't stand for that. Right. Um, and uh, I think it's in their manual, or at least in their guidance, that um, uh, essentially what drives a lot of their uh, evaluation is: is this income being taxed at some point? Because if you've managed to structure your affairs so your income never gets taxed, they're going to, you know, make sure you're ready for an audit, essentially, is the answer to that. Yeah, that's right. Um, And so I don't think they're going to be happy about a federal tax structure that would enable that for for lots of people. Um, Now, they may not be able to do anything about it. Ultimately, this is, uh, we're going to be all 
watching the tea leaves of what the Supreme Court says in their argument, what they say, what they write in their opinion um, to determine what the effect is. But, you know, these are the kinds of things that are jumping out at a case that, uh, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, on its surface, seems to be about only a very obscure tax issue involving two people. But it's it's got much wider implications. And then the government position, going back to the same example of the IRA, could open up this possibility where, you know, at any given point, they, if they, um, if they win this case, they could, in theory, say, hey, you know, that gain that you made on the deferred money, we actually, you know, we actually want to tax that now, right? We, yeah, you know, we don't care if you've realized that or not. Right. If realization is not a constitutional requirement, which is a lot of the academic debrief position, and I think in part the government's position here, if that ends up being adopted by the Supreme Court, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean Congress is going to um, disregard realization or the IRS is going to disregard realization. But uh, as it stands right now, there's a 1920 Supreme Court decision that says realization is constitutionally required. And if that goes away, that means they could say, you know, oh, you had a paper gain in, in this year. You didn't sell any of the of the gain, but, you you know, you had that paper growth and we can impose tax on that, even though you haven't sold anything. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's the basis for a lot of the wealth tax proposals that have been circulating. Um, you know, me and others have argued, no, that's unconstitutional. And when we say that, we're pointing to that 1920 Supreme Court decision. But if that goes away, it's um, the Constitution no, is no longer a barrier to that type of policy. Let, let me ask you a question. Maybe it, it's, uh, you know, and I know because, uh, you know, we we deal a lot with real estate in this space. And a lot of the people who are listeners yeah. of this show do. And, you know, we often have uh, situations. gain in real estate. The, pardon me? A lot of paper gain. In yeah, a lot of paper gain. For sure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of paper gain. So there's that element. But then there's also situations, for example, in syndicated real estate where, you know, you have limited partnerships and that sort of thing, where theoretically you could um, you could be getting distributions, but the general partner uh, decides to reinvest that into the property. So I guess what I'm trying to understand is what defines a real a realized gain? If you can, is is that a it just because the limited partner in that situation did not receive any any distribution, uh, is that that they don't have a realized gain? Or right now, I mean, when when people get uh, right now, I think uh, you know they're they're basically credited as having made some income, right? Like real estate investors, yeah. if there's distributions you invest. It's still a distribution. You're just basically adding to the basis. If you're asking me, I think the answer is that the business may have, if there was like a cash gain as opposed to just a property value gain, if there's a cash gain that the business did realize income, but maybe right. the individual did not if it was not distributed out. But, um, you know, that that's an obvious implication of this decision because right. um, is, as far as the, the government's concerned, uh, their argument in this case is there is a realization event or maybe realization doesn't matter at all. We could tax it anyways. Right. Um, under the Moore's argument, um, all that matters is cash changing hands. And if that does not happen, then there's no real, no realization and no income. 
And, you know, the current Supreme Court, it's very in vogue right now to talk about original meaning of words. So there's quite a few briefs talking about, well, what did dictionaries define the word income as in 1913 or, or around then? And, uh, uh, you know, I've learned a few things from these these briefs and, I, you know, income, I guess it comes from, uh, maybe you're not surprised by this, to come in. Uh, yeah. That is cash coming into yeah. somebody's yeah. Um, uh, accounts. And absent that, is it really income? So um, at least as far as that analysis goes, that seems to suggest that maybe the mores are closer to the truth on what realization is. Do you get a sense of uh, preliminary, uh, you know, any sort of arguments on this in, in which, which which way the court, I mean, it's obviously a pretty, um, you know, this is a largely a, uh, I would say a, a more uh, conservative court um, uh, than in years past. Right. Is that, do, do you get a sense from any sort of pre- preliminary arguments or anything like that, which, which way this is likely to go? I'm just curious. I mean, I know you can't predict the future, but I'm. No, I, yeah. I mean, I know I could, but the, yeah. um, the experts in which I include myself have been mostly useless on this because nobody predicted that they would take the case at all. Supreme court gets something like 8,000 appeals a year and they take about 80. So it's about a 1% chance of your case being heard by the Supreme court. And they did pick this one. And, uh, you know, other than the Moors and their lawyers, I don't think anybody anticipated that happening. So um, there's a lot of discussion about, well, why did they take the case? Um, yeah. You know, the, the Ninth Circuit ruled in favor of the Moors. That's the appellate court that covers California and the West Coast. It tends to be um, the villain for the conservative Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, the Ninth Circuit ruling in their favor maybe was the kiss of death on uh, them not taking the case. So, you know, that's possible one reason. Also, a lot of conservative judges on the Ninth Circuit dissented from the ruling at that uh, at that court. Um, so, you know, maybe the conservative justices saw this uh, very sweeping decision from the Ninth Circuit saying the federal government can tax whatever it wants. And they saw their. Uh, you know, conservative uh, fellow judges um, dissenting in it, and they're like, "Well, we got to take this and 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 change things." So, so um, just just for clarity, the Ninth Circuit actually ruled in favor of the government. It did, yeah. Oh wow. Okay, so the Ninth Circuit, and you're saying that's like a, a California court, basically. <laughs> so <right. laughs> that's where that's where I am. I so, well, you don't I have to tell me. <laughs> So, so, okay, got it. Well, that, that in a way makes a lot of sense then, right? I mean, if you're uh, with a, a largely, um, you know, conservative um, leaning court, the federal, federal court, uh, if, if this is a decision they see as a potential danger to a larger, uh, you know, larger decision-making uh, state by state on these matters. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the meantime, with that ninth, uh, the ninth circuit court case, does that have any implications at all? Or is it just basically, um, you know, that that's just on hold until this is decided just mostly I'm just curious on the mechanics of how the, the court system works. Uh, I think it's technically on hold. Um, yeah. you know, their decision was basically that the status quo is okay. So it didn't really, uh, impact anything. Um, uh, you know, we'll see now uh, what the Supreme Court does. And and Supreme Court moves fairly quickly as far as courts go. They'll hear our oral argument in December, and at the very latest, we'll have a decision by June. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone's, 
you know, I, I think everybody is concerned about a narrow versus a broad ruling. Um, so a lot of the briefs, including by the parties, are are saying, well, if you should rule for us, but maybe rule for us narrowly. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know if the court had any idea what it was getting itself into. Uh, as I said, my suspicion is they wanted to um, uh, fix a, a, what they saw as a wrong decision by the lower court that all of um, judges they identify with dissented from. Um, but you know, now they're getting all of these briefs, dozens of them, saying, uh, "Oh, you're going to unravel a lot of things here if you do this wrong." Um, and you know. It, there's a lot of uh, uh, comments by justices over the years that tax cases are not their favorite ones. Uh, you know, I know it's surprising to you or me or <laughs> the audience, but tax is not the exciting thing that that we understand it to be. And so um, the justices generally are loath to take tax cases. And um, none of the current justices are really a tax expert of any kind. They, sure. they never practice tax law or or have written or spoken on it in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's, I think, a concern on both sides in that, like, uh, you know, they may not understand uh, the implications of some of these arguments. Now, they're all smart people, and they have smart clerks, and they have a lot of material that's been submitted to them that they're all going to read and, and digest, um, but they have to turn that into something actionable uh, based on this decision. Yeah. And, and, and I'm curious on that too, because I mean, when we normally, when we hear about Supreme Court decisions, it's usually in favor of, or not in favor of, uh, you know, yeah. uh, but it's, so you're saying that in, in, in they, they can, or, or likely would, I guess in this case, maybe even make a decision, but be very narrow about what those definitions, uh, or what those things apply to. Right. And so yeah, and it, it goes yeah. down to the theory of what, like, what is wrong here? Um, yeah. is, you know, you could take, you could do what the ninth circuit did and say, well, the federal government can do whatever it wants. So yeah. our government wins. Um, I don't think they're going to do that, but that is possible. Um, you could see them saying, well, in this case, the federal government could, could do this because of specific facts relating to this company or these individuals or this particular tax. And that might be a narrow way to go. Um, you could also see them doing what, um, basically what the Moors are asking, which is unless there's a realization event, it's not constitutional to tax, um, to tax this money. Yeah. Um, and that could have a very sweeping motion. Yeah. Um, you know, the Roberts court, or at least chief justice Roberts likes to, um, do narrow decisions. He likes to only focus on the facts in front of him and the case in front of him. And if there are other implications, we'll save that for the next case. Uh, he doesn't always get his way, though. It's he's just one vote of nine, even if he is the chief justice. And you see sometimes, um, you know, he's got uh, at least according to some people, five conservatives to his right now, and he can end up in dissent. And 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 so some of the maybe more sweeping uh, social policy decisions that we've seen, uh, he's sometimes been in dissent, saying we should go slower. But you know, all it takes is five to uh, win the day in the Supreme Court. Right, right. Uh, well, fascinating stuff. Where and 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 this decision you said is uh, when by June or so you think it'll 
they, yeah. at the latest Supreme yeah. Court, uh, they, they prize their summer breaks. And so they try to get everything out in June. The oral argument will be December 5th. It'll be live streamed mm-hmm. on the Supreme Court's website, also on C-SPAN's uh, website. Um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, commentary written about the case. And um, it's always hard to judge how a case goes by the oral argument because, um, you know, justices will ask questions, but some, and sometimes their questions are, channeling their thinking, but also justices can play devil's advocate. They can be trying to probe for weaknesses on their side's argument and on the other side's argument. So, um, you know, there have been oral arguments where the bench seemed hostile, but the decision came out a different way yeah. uh, as well as vice versa. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, uh, thank you so much for being on and, uh, giving us some clarity on this, uh, Joe Bishop henchman, um, Tell us, tell us how we can learn a little bit more about uh, what your uh, foundation does and, uh, you know, how. how- sure. Uh, we mentioned our website, ntu.org. Um, we're always on Capitol Hill educating policymakers. We're putting out research on current issues such as this case, uh, as well as directly representing uh, small business clients in their tax disputes. You know, big businesses, they can hire any lawyer they want. Um, for low-income people, there's a lot of tax clinics and volunteer uh, uh, entities, um, but our our uh, public interest litigation program fills that gap in the middle for small businesses facing injustice from uh, tax authorities, and, and they don't really have anywhere else to go. So yeah. um, we're representing a client challenging double taxation from two states that are both blaming each other and, and leaving the taxpayer yeah. in the middle. Um, or we're challenging on remote work taxation of people having to pay for states that they don't even live in. Um, uh, we're, we're trying to do a lot of stuff for taxpayers and, uh, check out more at ntu.org. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks again for being on wealth formula podcast. Thank you, Buck. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, again, I think that uh, this is uh, this is a case to be, you know, to watch very carefully. And hopefully it doesn't make things worse for us. And, you know, as, as Mr. Henchman mentioned there, it actually could potentially be something that... Uh, that actually helps us. So keep an eye out for it. And just a couple of reminders. Uh, if you want to get involved with some of the things we're doing here in the Wealth Formula community, go to wealthformula.com, sign up for the Accredited Investor Investor Club, get onboarded before there's potentially some deal flow that you might participate on because it does take a little bit of time to do that. The other reminder I have for you is that I do have another podcast. It is called Sapio, S-A-P-I-O with Buck Joffrey. And it is a podcast in the health and longevity space. So I highly recommend you check that out. There's a lot of good stuff there. And if you go to sapiopodcast.com, there's actually even a book called Living Longer for Busy People. 
Anyway, check it out for yourself. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.